Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward, and today I'd like to invite you to join me in historic Weathersfield at the landmark Webb Dean Stevens Museum. Most people know Webb Dean Stevens for its four beautiful and historic house properties, and especially the Joseph Webb House where George Washington met with the French Count Rochambeau to plan the campaign that led to American victory in the Revolutionary War. This year, though, the museum is celebrating another very important event at the house, one that happened back in 1916. That's when the minister, photographer, antiques expert, and marketing genius Wallace Nutting made Webb Dean Stevens one of the very first historic house museums in America. It's an amazing story about an amazing man, and it's right here on Grading the Nutmeg. I began by asking Director Lyle how Wallace Nutting became involved with the property. Here's what he said. Well, Wallace Nutting uh, was creating a uh, chain of colonial picture houses, uh, that's what he called them, to use as, as working studios for his colored photographs, which had become very, very popular in the early 20th century. Uh, they were framed photographs that were hand-tinted, and uh, they were sold in department stores and jewelry stores and art stores all the way across the country. Uh, in fact, he estimated that he sold as many as 10 million of them. And he was looking for new subjects or backgrounds for a very popular photograph, which he called a colonial, which were interiors, which featured young women dressed in colonial garb uh, in a period room setting in an old house. And uh, he'd been using his own personal residences and uh, a few museums and uh, and a few private uh, homeowners. But... Uh, there were so many restrictions to that that he decided to launch this really ambitious project of purchasing five New England houses and then furnishing them and using them both as a backdrop for his photographs, but also opening them to the public with a 25-cent admission charge. And this was in 1915-1916. So this is uh, really a very early example of an early American house museum. Uh, you know, and and also, uh, you know, the celebration of American antiques and American interiors. This is uh, this is you know some ten years before the uh, American Wing was opened at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is always considered to be sort of the landmark in terms of uh, the first period rooms that were very conscientiously put together with period interiors and antiques to match that period. I think collectors of early Ameri things early American uh, all know Wallace Nutting, but I think many listeners to the podcast, he'll be uh, perhaps an unfamiliar name to him. Tell us about his background and how, you know, how he achieved the success that let him come and, and He's a, he's a fascinating character, and uh, his accomplishments through a lifetime are staggering. And uh, just to address your first point, uh, for some reason, you know, he's, he's, he's not, his name has not survived 
as as being one of the leaders in the American antiques and architecture field for various reasons. Uh, I think a lot of people feel that maybe he was too commercial. but uh, And he was commercial in a sense. But he was, in the early 20th century, as big a name as Martha Stewart has been in our uh, uh, period. Uh, and uh, and even, you know, accomplished much more as an author and as a collector. Um, he... Uh, he was a congregational minister, and he served in a variety of parishes in the United States, including in St. Paul, Minnesota, and Seattle, Washington. And he ended up in Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, he, uh, he took up the hobby of photography in uh, 1896. And uh, this was a time when bicycles were first being introduced. And he used to go up to Vermont in particular and take vacations there and ride a bicycle in the countryside and take pictures of country roads. And he particularly liked birch trees as a subject. And uh, that sort of launched his interest in photography. And then uh, to his great regret, he, uh, for health reasons, had to resign as a congregational minister. And uh, and he, uh, he resigned in... Uh, uh, the very early nineteenth early nineteenth century and uh or twentieth century excuse me and uh he uh he decided to go into the art photography business at that point because he had as an amateur photographer actually had several of his pictures published in important magazines like country life and ladies home journal and uh so he uh uh, when he resigned from the ministry, he, uh, which was in 1901, he uh, moved to New York, which was the place to be, and started an art studio in New York. But the first year he was there, he had pneumonia, and he decided that the city just didn't agree with him. And he was married at that time to Mariette Nutting, and uh, they decided to go house hunting in Connecticut and ended up missing their train or taking the wrong train and ended up in Southbury, Connecticut, where they saw a house that they liked. It was a, about a 1740 Connecticut farmhouse, and he purchased it on the spot, and uh, they moved to Southbury. And uh, So he had already had this interest in things colonial and early American at that time. Well, I'm not so sure he did. I think uh, I think that interest came really as a result of buying this old farmhouse in Southbury and uh, and starting its restoration. He, uh, he, uh, uh, he, he, he started uh, with the idea that he was seriously going to farm, and he bought some Holstein cattle, and he had some uh, sheep on the, on, on, on the property, and he built a barn for the cattle and, uh, and the other livestock, and he was, but he was still taking photographs. And uh, he was particularly uh, delighted by apple blossoms and spring bloom. And that followed the birches as one of his main areas of concentration for his outdoor phot photographs. Uh, but uh, they also made some renovations in the farmhouse, and they created a big living room out of the kitchen in a couple of adjacent spaces, and they called it the home room. And uh, he decided to start collecting American antiques. And uh, the story is that he and his wife were on a train to Hartford, Connecticut, and his wife had an appointment and he had to kill some time. So she suggested that he go to a local antique store, which was a double antique store in Hartford. 
and uh, he went over to become more educated about American antiques, and he ended up buying the entire inventory of the shop and uh, bringing it back to furnish his house in Southbury. And he didn't lose any money on it because he selected the things that he wanted to keep, and then he sold the rest at auction. An antique dealer's dream, right? An antique dealer's dream, but he was not a very discriminating collector in that phase. He just uh, he bought the whole inventory. He didn't even know what the styles of the furniture were. Yeah. and uh, But that kind of started him out. Uh, he uh, he writes in his autobiography that he went and bought Lyon's book on American furniture, which was one of the few publications on American antiques that existed during that period. And that started him on the quest for knowledge related to American antiques. So he, he, he was, he was, he was not somebody who was. And over the years he became a real authority, didn't he? He became the leading authority and, and, you know, his books still are, prized and used by uh, collectors and dealers and, and, and museum professionals. So he's bought this farmhouse, he's started farming, he's bought all these antiques, and he's still taking pictures. And already you begin to see the sort of the, the multi-skills and talents of this man. And how does, he, how does he then proceed to turn them into this big business? Well, what he, what he did is he decided to do these hand-colored art prints, which was really what he was interested in doing uh, all along when he went to New York. And uh, in those days, uh, there was not colored photography and uh, but there were some photographers who were doing black and white plates and then uh, their prints were hand-tinted. And he uh, used a special paper, a platinum paper. And uh, to get really vibrant colors, he invented a secret formula to size the platinum paper, hmm. which would make the colors jump from the paper. It turns out it was banana oil, and I guess it really smelled bad. Uh, but they uh, they sized all of the paper, and then... Uh, uh, he at first he uh, he outsourced the prints that he was taking to people in New York, colorists in New York, but he wasn't satisfied with the product, so he hired a, a highly skilled colorist, which is what they were called, a woman uh, who specialized in hand tinting photographs, and brought her in, and then they recruited two more people that she could train. And he installed them upstairs in his farmhouse. So this is in Southbury. In Southbury. Yeah. And that's what started it. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, they, they took off in the market. And uh, he, uh, he ended up taking the barn that he had built for his Holstein cattle and converting it into a barn studio where he had 35 colorists within a few years working for him, producing, uh, producing these prints. And then... Uh, uh, well, they're not prints, these colored photographs. And then he uh, he outgrew that and decided in 1911 to sell the Southbury property. So how, is, how does he, he's producing these color prints or these colored photographs, but then how does he market them? How does he get such a big audience for them? He actually did it. He had he had salesmen, sales rep representatives out in the uh, field, but... With him, uh, there was no middleman. He actually was dealing directly with department stores and with stores as authorized dealers of his product. And uh, um, 
And it, it it worked out for him. He estimated that he sold 10 million of these. So he uh, has this aesthetic sense, and he's also got a lot of marketing sense. He's got a, he's a, got yeah a lot of marketing savvy. He was a good businessman. But one thing that I missed uh, about the Southbury property is that I had talked about renovating the home room, which is what they called the the their living room, which was their uh, renovated kitchen. It had a bake oven in the back of the fireplace that they restored, and that was where he took most of his colonial interiors. Um, all of his photographs were taken outdoors up until about 1906 when he moved to Southbury. And the story is that on a rainy day, his wife Mariette suggested that, uh, you know, rather than being bored, that maybe he should consider taking some photographs indoors. And uh, Wallace Nutting, for artistic reasons, believed that it was important to have a model or a figure in his photographs. And I think he started with somebody who was working for him, either a colorist or a housekeeper and dress them, and uh, actually his wife dressed them in colonial garb, and uh, they would have that single figure, and sometimes there were several figures uh, in his in his pictures. So, and, in doing that, was he tapping into an interest in colonial America, or was he kind of creating it? I think he was creating it, but I also think he might have been influenced, even though he was a very young man when, in 1876, the Philadelphia Centennial took place. And they had the New England kitchen, which was sort of a phenomena. I think it's overestimated what its effect was, but they had spinning wheels and they had an old, a, a whole bunch of American antiques, most of them with an association with a famous pilgrim. And uh, he, uh, he had actually visited the Philadelphia Centennial when he was 15 years old. And I'm not saying that that had an influence on him 30 years later when he started these colonial interiors, but I think he might have gone back to some of the sources and Leslie's Magazine and other things because he created a sort of a sort of an iconic look where he emphasized the fireplace or the hearth, both in the kitchen and in the parlor and other rooms in the house, was as, as a centerpiece of the photographs, that he'd have the figures and colonial costume, which again happened in the centennial colonial so kitchen. So the images from the centennial. And the spinning wheel. Yeah, are and, uh, and, his and, and the Windsor chair and in the slatback chair. All of those things occur again and again and again in his photographs. And um, some people, even after the bicentennial, went as far as to create a, a, a spinning wheel chair. He didn't go that far, but he did offer in his catalog a spinning wheel hat rack, which we will have on loan in our exhibition. So he went into the furniture business? Yeah, after uh, after he moved to Massachusetts. He uh, he started at uh, the Ironworkers' House in Saugus, Massachusetts. Which when did he go? When did he leave Southbury? Nineteen eleven. And that was to go to Massachusetts. That was to go to Massachusetts, and he uh, he went to the site of one of his colonial picture houses, the Ironworkers' House in Saugus, Massachusetts, which was considered to be one of the first foundries in America. And uh, there was a foundry building there. And he had restored the house. He heavily restored it, you know, with with the overhang and the drops yeah, and the, it's the gables. Interesting. I wrote a book about John Winthrop Jr., who was one of the people who founded the Saugus Iron Works. Uh, and it's been very interesting to – I didn't realize till actually doing the research for this that the, the house that's there and the uh, forge that's there was a nutting reproduction. 
It is a nutting reproduction, and it uh, heavily favors the Paul Revere house and the house with the seven gables. But uh, he uh, he also, when he was restoring his other colonial picture houses, was unable to find a source for ironwork, for hardware and some of the things he needed for the restoration. And he hired a master iron worker to come, and they put the forge back. But he also bought the Scott's Mill, which was a nearby abandoned mill uh, close to the property. And it was large enough for him to install his colorists there, which grew to almost 100 colorists when he moved to Massachusetts. But he also, in 1917, embarked on a whole new venture, and that was to make high-quality, accurately uh, rendered American furniture. And he started with Windsor chairs, and uh, the, and really in Saugus, it was more of a Windsor chair business. And he hired 20 very highly trained craftspeople or, or, or craftsmen, mostly from Europe, to do the work. And they used a lot of hand methods as well as the machine, but mostly hand methods. And again, he's selling these direct? He creates and he, uh, he creates catalogs, and he sells them through catalogs. And he also advertised and important magazines, uh, you know, decorating magazines. And he favored Antiques Magazine in particular. And uh, um, he, uh, uh, it, it, it ended up being a popular business, but it never really made money. The color, the, uh, the colored pictures were really what made most of his money yeah. and kind of covered the losses for the furniture business. But the furniture business continued all the way into the 1940s. Now, all of these businesses came together and kind of led him into this colonial circle, the colonial house project, right? Or was that just the photography? That was just the photography. And that was the first wave of his collecting. And then World War I came along, and he had these five houses, and they sort of became an albatross around his neck. And uh, with gas rationing. So uh, why did he buy the houses? Why he bought them? He bought them mainly as a back, as a setting for his photographs. And uh, also with the admission charge, he thought that they could pay for themselves, and they pretty much did. Uh, with the Webb House, he opened it uh, in 1916. The first two years, there were over 2,000 visitors at 25 cents a piece, which pretty much covered the staffing and it covered uh, the the maintenance and upkeep. But then when World War I came along and gas rationing, he, the numbers plummeted to less than 100 in one year. And uh, he, was, he, was, he really had to cut his losses, and he sold all five of his colonial picture houses, including the Saugus property. And uh, he sold the contents. The content. Was he in financial straits at the time? Was it a kind of a an emergency? Well, he did no. Well, I, I wouldn't say it was an emergency. It was just a practical decision on his part. And uh, all of the furniture that he'd collected, well over a thousand pieces to furnish his five houses, were sold to uh, an antiques dealer. And three of the houses, the contents, including the contents from the Web House, were sold to Wanamaker's Department Store in New York. Wow! And uh, the catalog exists. Uh, and uh, and I forgot how many lots, about 80 or 90 lots of furniture 
were with several different pieces in each lot. So you can go to that catalog and really see. We can document what was here. Yeah, document what was That and through his Colonial Interior photographs. So what was the web house like before he purchased it? Well, the web house uh, had been owned by the Wells family, and uh, they were uh, professional people. Uh, I, I think the uh, first Wells, member of the Wells family, to purchase the house uh, after the Webbs, the Webb family, um, was was a, a prominent attorney. And then uh, at the end, uh, the 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 son or the descendant was a, was a was a doctor. And interestingly enough, we have the original account book uh, from uh, Wallace Nutting and his first employee, and I think the first guide at the Webb House starting in 1916 was Mrs. J.B. Wells, the widow of the last Wells family member to own the house. And she continued to work for uh, for here at the Webb House through the early colonial uh, dames period. The dames acquired the house in 1919 uh, when he sold, you know, his other houses as well and the contents. The Webb House was the last of these five colonial houses. Yeah, he started with uh, with four. He had uh, most most of them were in Massachusetts, and he had one in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and. Um, the Webb House was kind of envisioned as being the entry to his chain of colonial picture houses if you were coming from the South or from Connecticut. And uh, it's also the only house, he really bought it because of Washington's association. The house had always been iconic because of that association and because of its importance in the American Revolution. And that's why he bought it. And uh, so this this became his patriotic house, and he hired three Hartford artists to come in and paint murals in the hallway and in the two front parlors, and uh, one in particular in the Yorktown parlor commemorates Washington's great victory. It sort of was meant to be a shrine to George Washington with these views dating from the Revolutionary War. And, and of one course, it telegraphs to visitors how important the house is. Yeah, exactly, and it. it but also, and uh, you know, uh, when you look back with modern eyes, you're saying, how could he do that? You know, when the when the dames acquired the property and brought in their architectural advisors, they considered the murals, which were oil paintings on canvas glued to the walls, they considered them to be cartoonish and in bad taste for a house of this historic importance, and they wallpapered over them, and um, and of course we have since restored the murals in the Northeast parlor and in the Yorktown parlor because they are part of the history of the house and part of the colonial revival taste. They were, they were varnished, you know, like an oil painting and the varnish is really what protected the paint. Got it. So it was just a matter of removing the wallpaper and carefully, you know, with sponged soap and water, uh, softening it and, uh, and cleaning. And they're, they're, they really came out in perfect condition and uh, we couldn't do the hallway, however, because uh, the hallway, unlike the other two rooms, which, uh, you know, the Yorktown Parlor deals with the American Revolution and Washington's Great Victory, and then the Northeast Parlor is also charming. It has a, a like a dirt road that goes around with houses, old houses from Connecticut, including two of his colonial picture houses, a little cross-marketing. And it's, it, it's a, a charming landscape. And uh, and it it really is in keeping with scenic wallpaper, which was very popular during this 
period. So those had been covered up, but now they're... Yeah, I, I, I was responsible for uncovering the Northeast Parlor in 2007, just after I'd arrived here as director. Uh, I, I did it with a staff member. And then, uh, but the hallway, uh, he had English castles and English landscapes in the hallway on the first and second floor. And um, they were particularly popular with visitors because uh, when the dames wallpapered over those paintings and opened the house to the public, there was apparently a section of the wallpaper that was loose and the visitors kept peeling it back and peeling it back and peeling it back to see the castles. And in the minutes of the dames meeting, they finally decided that the only thing they could do was paint it over. So they did paint over it. <laughs> and they painted over it. And uh, unlike the other paper that we've been able to preserve, we haven't been able to preserve the castles. But uh, we do have uh, of some pictures of it that are going to be in the exhibit, which will be the entire first floor of the web house. We have, of course, the two rooms with the murals in the front. And in the Yorktown parlor, we're going to have... I'm doing 14 exhibit panels, and uh, there'll be two panels in each of those rooms discussing various aspects of Nutting's, you know, ownership of the of the web house and some of the things he did. But uh, we're actually reproducing. We we bought a mannequin, and we've got one of the pictures called Birthday Flowers. And we're going to have one figure. We're actually making the clothing. Lynn Bassett, who's an expert in textiles in in this area is in charge of, of dressing one mannequin to look exactly as it does in the photograph. So you're going to reproduce one of the essentially sets that not yeah. used for his pictures. That's great. So that that leads me right toward this question that I wanted to ask, which is for people who have come here to see the you know, the house where Washington met Rochambeau and they come back to the nutting exhibition, what will they see that's different? How how, what will they see that's the same and what's going to be different for them as they come through? Well, as I said, you know, we're producing 14 illustrated exhibition panels that will be cover both Wallace's involvement in the web house, but it'll also be much broader context. And uh, we talk about his role as an artist and a photographer. And I've told you the story about how he started in Southbury. And that will really emphasize Southbury. Uh, we're going to talk about his restoration here of the Webb House. We're going to talk about the colonial revival period. There'll be another large panel uh, where we talk about his 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 work as a as a businessman and an entrepreneur, really starting with his move to Saugus, Massachusetts, moving the business uh, to Massachusetts when when it really became a big deal. And then I have a panel called uh, Collector and Connoisseur because. Uh, after he moved the business from Saugus and sold the property at Saugus, he bought a big cannery factor just north of where he lived in Framingham. And uh, it was called Ashland and had a railroad uh, going right up to the, to the factory building, which was you know, helpful in terms of bringing in supplies and materials. And uh, he consolidated the colorists and the furniture business in this large factory building. And uh, it was at that point that he decided to sell the business. So he sold the business in 1921. It's just very interesting. He, he, 
he uh, yeah, but relocates he, it so that it can really you know the things where things where the colors the color prints were going going like hotcakes and the furniture business was finally established and he had expanded his line past just Windsor chairs to include particularly Pilgrim Century forms and he was writing his book on Pilgrim Century furniture and collecting Pilgrim Century furniture which they used some of the original items that he was collecting as uh, as prototypes for for his furniture reproductions, and uh, and things, and he uh, he decided, I think, that he was really more interested in becoming a collector and a writer because he had published a book called the Windsor Handbook, which was his first book on American antiques, and it was a great success. And now he was furn- doing uh, furniture of the Pilgrim Century, and uh, he. Uh, uh, and he was about to embark on a big project, which he called, um, you know, the the States series, where he did uh, basically travel books of most of the original colonies, thirteen colonies, and also California. And uh, so he uh, he uh, you know it was a good time to sell, and apparently he got good money and was able to use that money to create this really pristine collection of Pilgrim Century furniture. But it turned out that a couple of years later, he felt that the Nutting brand, which because they bought his name in essence, was really deteriorating under the new new owners. And uh, in the contract, he had the right to buy the business back. So he ended up selling this entire collection of antiques that he developed and this is his second phase of collecting. Right. You know, he was he wasn't going into an antique shop and buying the whole inventory. This was, you know, he had developed a network of antiques dealers so and he's auction really houses. Buying high quality items. He was now. he was on the level of Henry Francis Dupont yeah. as a collector. He was really buying the top of the top. He bought, you know, most people could never find a court cupboard during this period. He had five of them. Yeah. And uh he uh, uh but he uh he was really disturbed about the way the business was going, so he exercised his right under the contract to buy the business back. So he felt the, like his brand, they were selling them as nutting pieces, right? Yeah. He felt like it was being tarnished by... Yeah, yeah the, the it just wasn't on the same level, yeah. the same quality. And uh, where did he get the money? He sold the entire collection, the second collection, because he'd already sold the first one, but the one that he really curated. Yeah. And he sold it to the Wadsworth Athenaeum. It was uh, purchased by J.P. Morgan Jr., and it was uh, given to the museum, and it is now the foundation for the American collections at at the museum. And, uh, and this and was the, the the American Wing had already been established. The American uh, Wing in New York opened yeah. in 1924, and uh, the American collections, uh, which are now known as the Wallace Nutting Collection of American furniture or art at at the Wadsworth Athenaeum. Uh, they opened in 1925, just a year after. So they were a kind of arrival of the of the Met, and uh, and this this collection was particularly strong in the early stuff from the 17th and early 18th century. So so this entrepreneur becomes this great curator of antiques, and he publishes on them, right? And he publishes on antiques, and of course his biggest book came after uh, Furniture of the Pilgrim Century, which, by the way, is still in print. Uh, and the and the Windsor book is also considered to be one of the major reference books. But he created a two-volume book 
it ultimately ended up being three volumes, but the first two volumes were the photographs uh, called The Furniture Treasury, which is still the uh, over 5,000 photographs. And uh, about 75% of those included in the book came from private collections. And when, what decade was this published in? Was it the... Late 20s. Amazing. And it, it, it still is one of the major reference tools in the antiques business. And he went on to do a clock book. And, uh, I understand a, that's a standard reference yeah, too, right? All standard reference books. At the same time, publishing articles for antiques. What an amazing person. How you had said at the beginning that um you know, in some circles he's not perhaps as well known or as highly thought of as he might be. How's his reputation fared since you know, since the, in, in the years since he was the uh the leading authority? Well, you know, I think he, I think his name has sort of disappeared in in, in a lot of respects. And uh, do people still collect his furniture? But they... well, there is the Wallace Nutting Collectors Club who are collaborating with us on the exhibition. Who uh, it's a wonderful group of people, and they're very serious collectors of Wallace Nutting furniture. And the the furniture has become very highly prized because of the quality of its construction and design. Um, a lot of the furniture that was part of the colonial revival movement that was being done by companies like Grand Rapids in Michigan were, in Nutting's estimation, mongrel furniture. Uh, they were not, you know, they would mix styles and uh, uh, they were not uh, accurate historic reproductions uh, and not of the quality that he was producing. Uh, he was he was a, he was he ended up being such a perfectionist that that's one of the reasons why his company was not as successful financially as it, it probably should have been, because after World War II there was this big wave of uh, patriotism and people were building in the suburbs of all of the major cities colonial revival or colonial style houses, and uh, that was the market for all of this. Colonial revival furniture sure, that was being produced. Companies like Ethan but, Allen had their heyday, right? But Wallace Nutting was 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 charging, you know, a lot of money for particularly his high end pieces. Could go for his, uh, a secretary, Newport secretary with the uh, shell and the block front uh, was 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 going for about eighteen hundred dollars at a time when a when an average doctor was making five thousand dollars a year. Wow. Very expensive. So, uh, and, and in fact, there are only seven of those Newport secretaries that were sold, and they were all, you know, uh, sold to order through the catalog. Uh, whereas, you know, his Windsor chairs and his slatback chairs and stools and uh, simple tables really sort of were the backbone of the business, I think. So tell us about the Webb House after Nutting. He. He sold it in... Nutting sold it in 1919 uh, to the Colonial Dames. And uh, he, uh, it, it's, it's really fortunate that the Dames got the house. It is, it, it is a really important house when it comes to Connecticut history. And um, the Dames uh, brought in some of the leading people in the field, like Appleton from the study for the preservation of New England antiquities and, and Kelly, the great architect, 
early author on on Connecticut architecture. And they uh, and by this time, 1919, you were beginning to see, particularly emanating from Appleton in New England, you were getting to be a much more strict uh, standards for historic house restoration. And uh, I think the dames uh, wanted to recreate the house as it was in, 19, in 1781 when Washington stayed here. And uh, But it was still very colonial revival, the interiors, and we have photographs of all of them with dark floors and oriental rugs and other things. But uh, So it wasn't an accurate restoration completely, but um, as I said earlier, the, the, the painted murals that Nutting installed that were never in the house were covered over, and they... Um, Nutting also had brought in, because he wanted the Yorktown parlor to be this really important room, and he didn't think the the Yorktown parlor was actually extended three or four feet during the Wells period when they had to put in a new chimney on that side of the house. So it wasn't accurate to begin with. And when Nutting acquired the house, the mantle in that room was from the 1830s, and it wasn't very attractive. And particularly, it wasn't colonial. So Nutting brought in this beautiful scrolled, pedimented uh, mantle from a house in uh, in Providence, Rhode Island, and installed it. And uh, that was removed by the dames, and they put more appropriate paneling that was simpler from the period. And uh, but and it ended it, up it, going to a good home, didn't it? Yeah, it's it's it uh, it ended up going to an antiques dealer who sold it to Henry Francis Dupont, and it's now in the architect's room at the Winter Tour Museum. So, uh, this fascinating man, Wallace Nutting. What's the what happened to him later in life? How? What's the end of the story? Well, he lived uh, he lived up through the nineteen forties, and uh, you know, continued to be active. He was he had a you know, and uh, but uh, quieter than he had been in his earlier period. The furniture business continued under his uh, um, under his ownership, and uh, they were still uh, doing. He still had colorists working for him, but I think the depression and uh, you know the all of the changes in uh, in the 1930s, the business began to decline. Sure. And uh, it wasn't on the same level that it was during during its heyday in the pre, uh, pre-Depression period. Well, this has been a fascinating interview about a fascinating exhibit. Yeah, and it'll be running through October. So you have four months to get in and see something that is truly exceptional. Yeah, and for more information, we'll be posting uh, information on our website, uh, webdeanstevens.org. Uh, Well, thank you very much for uh, letting us come in and talk about this. Yeah, delighted you're here. Thanks. Well, so now we know where Martha Stewart got the idea. We wish to thank Charles Lyle and the Webb Dean Stevens Museum and encourage everyone to visit the Wallace Nutting exhibit there now through October 30th. 
To hear more great stories about people, places, and great moments in Connecticut history, subscribe to the Grading the Nutmeg podcast on iTunes or visit gradingthenutmeg.lipsign.com. You'll also find a fascinating world of great Connecticut stories and images in the pages of Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. Subscribe at ctexplored.org. I'm state historian Walt Woodward, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg.